Okay, <clears throat> so going back into now original solitude. So traditionally, when we talk about what makes man man and what makes us different from the animals, we talk about self-consciousness and self-determination. Right, which basically is reason and will. Okay, we have reason, we have free will. John Paul II says that Adam is a subject of the covenant and partner of the absolute. Okay, he's a subject of the covenant and partner of the absolute. Okay, which means that a relationship is also part of what makes us human. So a lot of people who reflect on the theology of the body say that, you know, traditionally we say like man has reason and free will, but the ability to love and to enter into loving relationships is also fundamental to what it means to be a human person. So in his first encyclical letter that he ever wrote, John Paul II in Redemptor Hominis 10 says, man cannot live without love. He is a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. And so he writes that in Redemptor Hominis, the Redeemer of Man, and then he quotes himself repeatedly in the rest of his writings for the rest of his pontificate. Constantly calling us back to the fact that man cannot live without love. He's a being that is incomprehensible to himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Sister. So to be a subject of the covenant means that in a subjective way, he's in relationship with God, right? The covenant is this relationship with God. And he's a partner of God. So in original solitude, he experiences love. He experiences that relationship of love with God. So even before the creation of woman, because in Genesis chapter 2, we have man and then woman. So even before Eve comes into the picture, he already experiences love. And he experiences himself as loved by God. Okay, so this is a point where I'm going to reflect again on Pope Benedict XVI, when he talks about being created in the image of God. And this is from the article Truth and Freedom, which, if you want to find it, you can Google it. Okay? Joseph Ratzinger, Truth and Freedom, Communio. Okay? It was in Communio. And in that article, he's writing about, he's writing about abortion, actually. But 
when he writes about it, he talks about how true freedom takes place in the context of our identity as being created in the image and likeness of God. And so when he talks about the Trinity, he talks about these three kinds of love that exist in the Trinity. Because okay, as Americans speak English, we just throw the word love around like nobody's business. And we can go back to the Greek forms of the word for love, like there's eros and agape and storge and, and philios. But, um, but for Pope Benedict, he just talks about these three kinds of love, which kind of makes it simpler. And so when looking at the Trinity, let me find a marker that works. Sorry. I'm going to have to use red. You have these three persons in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right, according to St. Thomas, those three persons have a distinction, and the distinction is in their relationship. So again, some people are like anti-relationship. And they just want things to be about objective, da, 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 da. and they're like relational, blah, phenomenology, blah, personalism, blah. But even in St. Thomas, right, he says that the persons of the Trinity are distinct from one another because of their relationship. Because you have three persons, they all have a divine nature, which means they all have the same amount of power. They're all God. But there has to be something that makes them three persons and not one person. Right? Because of one, if, if they're all God and they don't have bodies, right? Because even before the incarnation, they're all God. So they got three persons hanging out in eternity and they don't have bodies. So what keeps them from like Star Trekking, melding into one person? And St. Thomas says it's their relationship. Okay? So this is a particular relationship. And it's the relationship that goes from the Father to the Son. And we can call that relationship love as gift. Okay, love as gift. Right, to be the Father means that he gives himself to the Son. And if we're trying to think about, like, what does that actually mean that he gives himself totally to the Son, we could think about, like, when he created me or any of you, right? Because he created all of us the same way he created everything in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let there be Father Kokali, boom. And so it happened. <laughs> and so I think it's in Frank Sheed in Theology for the Beginners, he reflects on this. And what he talks about is like this idea that from all eternity, God knows who I would be. So he sort of has this idea in his divine intellect of who I will be. So scripture can say, before I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew you. But at a certain point, he speaks forward that idea. He says, let there be Father Kukali. And so it happened. And when he speaks forward that idea, that idea has a finite context, right? It has finite content. 
Right? He made me exactly who I am, nothing more, nothing less. Right? So he gave me certain gifts, and then other gifts he didn't give me. I will never dunk a basketball, nor have I ever dunked a basketball. I don't have those gifts. But then he did give me whatever he gave me. Um, so he just speaks forward what I am, who I am. Now, from all eternity, the Father also knows who he himself is. And he speaks that forth eternally. So as he speaks forth who he himself is eternally, it's something that happens eternally because he's infinite. And so there's no way of just simply saying one word, but it constantly, right? It has to eternally happen. And so that's what happens in this relationship of the idea of giving himself to the son. If we put words on that, this is the kind of love that we say wills the good for the other. Right? The father wants the good for the son. This is the kind of love that is sacrifice. So when we say love is sacrifice, so we go back to your four questions, right? What is love? Things that come to mind is sacrifice, putting other people's good before my own good. Um, being willing to give up something for another person, wanting the good for the other person, right? It's that kind of love. Then there's this relationship that goes from the son to the father. Now, St. Thomas says that this distinction has to be an absolute distinction. They have to be completely different from each other. Otherwise, they meld like a Star Trek guy. So it cannot be the same. It has to be completely different. The son is not the father. The father is not the son. I think it's in the sentences St. Thomas says that the difference between the father and the son is an even greater difference than the difference between God and man. Because it has to be absolutely different because they're spiritual persons and their only distinction is in their relation. So this kind of love, we're going to call love, but it's not gift. It's the response to gift. Right? It's the response. So the response to gift is to give back. That's what we usually want to say. That's what people tend to say, to give back. Even C.S. Lewis says to give back because that was his vocabulary that he's using. C.S. Lewis calls this gift love and this need love, a divine need love. But it's not really to give back, because in our American minds, to give back means you gave me something, I give you something of equal value. Now I don't owe you anything. We're even. Right? When you go to lunch with your colleagues, if everybody pays for your own stuff, you never have to go to lunch again, because you're even. <laughs> it sounds horrible, but that's kind of how we operate as Americans. Right? I want to make sure we're even so I don't owe you anything. Then I never have to see you ever again. It's the implied message. I learned it's different in Spain. I, it was my birthday party when I was in 
Italy and I invited all these friends, these Spanish guys to lunch for my birthday. And uh, cause I just want to celebrate my birthday. But I like made an American invite, but they thought I made a Spanish invite. Cause when you're Spanish, if you say, will you come to lunch? It implies you're paying. If you invite, you pay, period. And then if they like you, they invite you later and you all end up even somewhere along the line, but you stay in relationship. So this caused great embarrassment when that happened. I picked up on it halfway through the meal, but then I was with this Polish guy who is from Chicago, and he was insistent on everybody paying for me, so it was a clash of cultures. And I think I got to sort it out afterwards, but it's the response to gifts. So when somebody gives you a gift, what do you do? I say thank you, because you're all really holy, right? I asked my high school kids this, and they were like, uh, I look for the receipt at the bottom of the box. Um... Things like that, right? That's the culture we live in. We live in a culture that says, I want things on my own terms, which isn't vulnerable, because we don't like being vulnerable. When somebody gives you like a secret Santa gift at school and you weren't expecting it, you're like, oh man, I gotta go shopping now. There's so much trouble. Can't you just take this back so I don't have to go shopping? Um, that can happen. So <laughs> everybody's afraid to laugh at that. All right. <laughs> So this gift is receiving gift. It's receiving love. Okay, so love or be loved. This is love. This is be loved. Because who is Jesus? He's the only beloved son of the Father. And so the being loved kind of love says, I entrust myself to you. I entrust myself to you. That formulation is from Lumen Fide, which I'm pretty sure was Benedict XVI's contribution to Lumen Fide because of the way that he's been working on how do we talk about this for a very long time. So I entrust myself to you. Which means it's the kind, it's, you can say it's a gift, but it's the kind of gift that says, I'm going to put myself into your hands and let you be the Lord of my life. So the act of faith in Lumen Fide is described as entrusting ourselves to a merciful love, which always accepts and pardons and makes straight the crooked lines of our history. And to explain and trust myself to you, because we don't use those words in English very much. You know, like I can entrust you with something. Like I can entrust you to hang on to my marker so I don't lose it later, but it's only worth like a dollar. So I don't have to know you want the good for me to do that. You know, when I teach it to kids, I pull out my keys to my car and I'm like, I entrust you with my car keys. Which means a little bit more, right? Like I have to know you a little bit better. I have to know you're not going to go out and steal my car. I have to know you're not going to go out and take the stuff out of my trunk whatever it is, right? You have to be a little more trustworthy for me to give you my car, right? When parents ask somebody to babysit their child, they have to know the child wants the, the babysitter wants the good for their kids, right? To say I entrust myself to you completely means I could turn off my brain and let you make all my decisions for the rest of the day. And I know that at the end of the, at the, end of the day, my life's going to be better than it was at the beginning, right? And how many people in our lives can we say that about? Because if we're honest, it's really hard. It's really hard. 
know, that's what a husband says to his wife on their wedding day. That's what a wife says to her husband on their wedding day. Like, that's the promise they make. The promise to be trustworthy and also to recognize you are trustworthy and I give my life to you. When I was ordained, I put my hands in Bishop Ruskowitz's hands and he said, do you promise respect and obedience to me and my successors? And I said, I do. I think. <laughs> right? Because in honesty, there have been times in my priesthood where I wasn't quite sure that I had entrusted my life completely. Or it becomes obvious down the road. So, like, when I was... I had this vision for my life. My life was going to be, I'm going to leave the army, I'm going to go to the seminary. That'll take six years, and then I'll serve in Paris for three years, and then I'll go back on active duty in the army, and I'll be the airborne ranger, Arabic-speaking army priest. Because <laughs> we need one. And, and then some things just started to happen, like more things started to happen in my life. My dad died. I wasn't, I wasn't mourning, right? Like All this guilt. At the end of my dad's deathbed, he says to me, don't go to the army because <laughs> you're too good at what you do. And that just stuck in my head and I was like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Like, I've never really been obedient to my father in my entire life and now I have all this guilt that I have to be obedient to him and I've delayed going back in the army. So I went three years, delayed, went a fourth year. At the end of the fourth year, I went to the bishop and I said, okay, I'm ready to go back in the army. And he says, oh, you'll be great, you'll be great, you'll probably be a general someday. But, but, I think you should go study marriage and family at the John Paul II Institute. So it was kind of put this way. You can do whatever you want, <laughs> but I think you should remember you made a promise of obedience. Right? He didn't put the obedience part in, but it was implied. And so I did. I went to the JP2 Institute. And then for the second time in my life, I found myself in a position where all of my classmates from West Point were in war getting shot at, and there's not enough priests, and I'm sitting in a classroom, just surrounded by, in the, when I was in the seminary, surrounded by people with no life experience. In Europe, I was surrounded by people from third world countries, and I was like, what the heck am I doing here? I got like an African on this side, a Chinese guy on this side. Um, and I started to go to bed at night, and I would think about like, what would my life be like if I had chosen differently? And as soon as we go down that road, we start to not entrust our life anymore. So I'm like, what would my life be like if I went into the army? I'd be doing this, that, the other thing. This guy I was in chaplain school is now the poster boy for army chaplains, and he wasn't very squared away. What's going on? Um, and then I start thinking, well, what if I'd never gone to the seminary? Like, I would be a colonel right now. And then I'm like, what if I married my high school girlfriend? I'd have a 15-year-old kid. Like, just your brain goes in these weird places, and you stop entrusting myself to our Lord. That was a sign that I had not entrusted myself completely to the bishop or to Jesus. And I had to reaffirm and make like that act of faith and trust again. And so I was out jogging by St. Peter's, and I look up, see St. Peter's Basilica, and for the first time in my life, I said the words, I want to be a priest. Which sounds crazy, because I was ordained for seven years at that point. But it was, in fact, the first time I'd ever said the words, I want to be a priest. Before, I'd always said really pious things, like, I want to do whatever God wants me to do. 
right? But there's a difference between I want to do whatever God wants me to do, which is this abstract concept of what God's will is, and wanting to do the thing that God wants me to do. Because I, I look, when I was discerning, my spiritual director said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do whatever God wants. And then when I said that, you know what I was doing? I was avoiding the question. I was just saying, I want to do whatever God wants. And he said, oh, good. That's a good answer. You're so pious. Good job. But in fact, I had never really made an act of the will. I was just sort of going along. And my discernment plan was, I'm going to stay until somebody tells me to leave. If nobody tells me to leave, it must be what God wants. But I had never really formed my own intention. And I think, I mean, I thought I'd informed my own intention. I don't want to make it sound like I'm vicious or something like that. But it became obvious that my intention was weak. And, and then I figured out the difference between like wanting whatever God wants because that gives us a like, big loophole. Because later on we can say, obviously God didn't want this for my life. And people do that all the time. But discernment means like I ask God, what does he want? He tells me, I want you to be a priest, stupid. <laughs> and then I want to be a priest because that's what God wants me to do. Right? That's the struggle of the spiritual life. And it's the struggle to entrust my life completely to our Lord. Jesus is the person who entrusts himself completely to the Father. That's who Jesus is. He entrusts himself completely to the Father. If we really look at Jesus' relationships, it's all about the Father. He does nothing apart from the Father. In Gethsemane, he says, Let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done but yours. I entrust my life to you. On the cross, he says, Into your hands I commend my spirit. I put my life into your hands. I entrust my life to you. Why can he do that? Because the Father is constantly saying to him, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right? That's how the Gospel begins. And so this idea of sonship or be loved is entrust myself completely to you. And then there's the Holy Spirit, which is the bond of love between the Father and the Son and the fruitfulness of the love between the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is the bond that binds together these two people, which is so strong that it becomes its own person. And when Pope Benedict reflects on these three persons, he says the Father is a being for the Son. The Son is a being from the Father. And the Holy Spirit is a being with the Father and the Son. And so you have these three different kinds of love. The love that is from, the love that is with, and the love that is for. And so when he talks about being created in the image of God, he says that we're created in the image of the from, the with, and the for. The eternal God, by his very nature, is entirely being for, being from, and being with, which corresponds to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Man is God's image, and precisely insofar as the from, the with, and the for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. Okay, that's what Pope Benedict says in Truth and Freedom. The fundamental anthropological pattern. So the pattern of our life is to be from, be with before, or to be a child who's a being from, a son or a daughter, 
a spouse who's a being with, a husband or a wife, and a, for, and a parent, a being for, a mother or a father. And when he says it's a fundamental anthropological pattern, it means that it comes in this order. It comes in the order of being son or daughter, husband, wife, mother, father. And so our fundamental identity lies at the root, which is to be a son or daughter of the father. Because the Second Vatican Council says it's Jesus who fully reveals man to man. If we want to know who we are, we have to look at Jesus. And Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. So many people, when I ask them, who is Jesus? They say, Savior of the world, Good Shepherd, my personal Savior, the guy who doesn't listen to me when I pray. Um, but they hardly ever say off the bat, Son of God. Which is interesting because it shows that we think more about loving than being loved. We think about Jesus as the person who loves the world, not the person who is beloved by the Father. But the gospel message is that Jesus is the Son of God. So when we take Mark's gospel, opens with the baptism, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Goes to the transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. After the crucifixion, after Jesus gave his life for the world, what's the conclusion? Truly this was the son of God. Jesus is the son of the father. And he reveals to us who we are. And in order to be the savior of the world, he has to be the son of the father. So the cross would mean nothing if he wasn't the son of the father. Which means in our own life, when we talk about who we are, we are beloved sons and daughters first. This is why John Paul II spends this much time on original solitude. Because we have to be a son or a daughter before we enter into this being with relationship between men and women. So that we can enter into this being for relationship as mothers and fathers. Right, the quickest way for any of us to get unhinged in our own vocations is when we see our primary identity here or here. It's the quickest way to get unhinged. If I am a father before I'm a son, I will empty myself out and burn out in, in like a few months. Whenever I feel myself getting burned out or empty it out, I'm like, uh, I forgot who I am. I forgot it's more important to be loved than to love. I forgot that my identity is to be a son or daughter of God. And the same thing applies in marriages, right? In marriages, when somebody finds their identity in their husband or their wife, primarily, you're looking to a fallible person to love you in an infallible way, and things start to get unhinged. 
things start to get unhinged. And I'm thinking about the dramatic ways they get unhinged, right? Which I hear about like in Al-Anon meetings and things like that, right? Al-Anon meetings are full, like one of the biggest things, biggest lessons is that you're looking for your spouse to be your savior and he's not your savior. Jesus is your savior. Your identity is in our Lord. Your identity is not in what this person thinks of you. Right? If my identity, even as a priest, is in what my people and the congregation think of me, my preaching is going to go into the toilet. Be like, you're all amazing. <laughs> Instead of being a father. So, like, all of this, like, Trinitarian anthropology, like, this is Pope Benedict's sort of theological synthesis of all the truths in John Paul II's writings in Theology of the Body. Recently, I just saw this article where Pope Benedict was given an honorary doctorate from a Polish university, and he attributes, like, his theological growth or his accomplishments as a theologian to John Paul II. And we can kind of see how he's reflected on that. You know, because after John Paul II spent his whole pontificate on marriage and family life, Pope Benedict becomes Pope, and the first thing he does is writes an encyclical on love, which is a synthesis of the Wednesday Catechesis. And then he moves to hope, and then he moves to faith. And this all gets kind of lost, because when we think of Pope Benedict XVI, what do we think of? He's a theologian of love. Not usually. We think he did this liturgical renewal. And the liturgical renewal is important, but the liturgical renewal is just a visible sign of his theology of love. That's what it is. It's a visible sign of his theology of love. Why does he want to face the cross when he says Mass? Because he is a beloved son of the Father. And he needs to receive from our Lord. So he needs to be in relationship with God as he celebrates Mass. That's why he wants to look at the crucifix when he says Mass. Right? It's the living out of his theology of love within the context of the liturgy. And sometimes it gets lost because we don't always look to the most fundamental thing. Okay, So, partner of the absolute, we are all sons and daughters of the Father. Okay, So man is alone he's set into a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God himself. Right? Unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God himself. Those three adjectives need to be proclaimed to every single person. Like, you are unique. You have an exclusive relationship with God. You have an unrepeatable relationship with God. This is what young people long for. They long to be unique. Otherwise, they wouldn't put holes in their face. (laughs) They want to be seen as unique, as chosen. You are chosen by the Father. And that relationship is unrepeatable. It's something that is between you and our Lord. And it's not... He doesn't treat you all the same. He treats you as you. 
Like when God looks at the field, he doesn't see the field. He sees every individual blade of grass in the field. You know, if we are to be images of God in the lives of our young people, we have to see them as unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable. When we fail to see them as unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable, we start treating them all the same. And their lives just aren't the same. They all come from different backgrounds and different places in the world. And they want to discover that. You know, they want to discover that. And they have questions about who they are. There's two different schools that invited me in to give like a synthesized 45-minute presentation on identity this last year. And what was amazing were the questions at the end. Because like a theology of the body presentation, you would expect all the questions to be about like my boyfriend, my girlfriend, love, dating, relationships. None of them. The questions were like, I don't know my dad, so how do I find my identity? Or the questions were like, my parents never were married, so what does that say about me? Like These are the questions that our people have in their hearts that they long to ask, but nobody is like, the space to ask them is limited. When I came, when I left to go to Rome, I taught theology of the body to seniors, and I had all these, all these kids coming to me, wanted me to give them relationship advice, because I taught everything like in the context of marriage. When I came back, I started talking about sonship and daughterhood. Then I got people coming in, uh, Father, I don't know what to do about my mom. I don't know what to do about my dad. You know, I don't feel loved at home that's what they started coming forward with, which is more fundamental. And if that can be healed in the root while they're still young, we just saved like a couple generations worth of people. Sister. Um, I'm looking at your diagram and I'm thinking about the Faith and Life textbook and the classic diagram of is God, is God, is not, is not, is not, is not. Yeah. Um, and even the first, it's chapter one or three of on the Trinity and on God the Father, God the Creator. And how to take this and give them this instead of he's not this, he's not this, he's not this, but he is this. Um, are any... Print the slide and like paste it in. I don't... <laughs> seriously, nobody does that. Like this is, this is like this Father Kokali original. <laughs> like, I made this up with Father Sizza 11 years ago. Uh -huh. And I've never seen anybody else who talks like that. Because even when I was in graduate school, they use triangles, they use all this kind of stuff. But I think this makes more sense. Because um, the is, is not, is not, is not. What is that? That's doctrine. And it's important, doctrine. But what's a relationship? It doesn't show what a relationship is. And for second graders to be able to understand that, you know, then when they get to high school, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a mm -hmm. dog. You know, I'm a son, I'm a dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. And also to show, right, like that you cannot do this unless this is here. So what do we want to do? We want to discern is somebody trustworthy so that I can know if I can trust my life to them. And even in fact, the book talks about father relationships. Like what's a father do? And they give all these examples of dads, but they're these perfect dads. 
which some of them are like, well, my dad doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. But then could we go at it from the, a father is someone who wills the good, and to give examples that way instead of, what does mm-hmm. your dad do? Well, he buys me stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, he wills the good. Yeah. Okay. So just by changing that, fine-tuning the language can help them clarify I think and so. create more distortions in their life. Yeah, I think so. I think it can help to proclaim the truth about the situation. Um, I know it works with adults, and I know it works with the high school kids. I haven't taught like first or second graders, and I'm not good at it. But, but I think that there's language there that can be used. Right? There's language there that can be used because they understand trust. You know, at a basic level, they can understand trust, or they can recognize where it's not. They are, because they haven't had trustworthy people in their life. And there's lots of reasons for that. There's like financial reasons, there's like two working parents, there's like day, institutional daycare, like all of these things, they kind of break down this reality. Because if the same person's not there for me every single day, then what do I learn? I learn how to scan my environment to find out who's gonna take care of me. And we can become over-trusting or under-trusting. Right, like I grew up in a family where, well, I grew up, my mom had cancer. She had cervical cancer while she was pregnant with me. Right, I was born, she started cancer treatments. No go. Right, so she spent a year and a half in treatment and then she died. So the whole time I was an infant, she was in treatment and I had like aunts, grandparents, neighbors, um, all kinds of different people taking care of me. So as a kid, the only thing I learned was I have to scan my environment for who's taking care of me today. So my dad tells a story. I went to visit my great aunt, walked in the kitchen in the morning, and I said, good morning, mom. She got all sad. But to me, mom wasn't a person. It was the word for the lady who makes pancakes in the morning because I just stayed in lots of different places. And I just, like, I had to learn to, like, scan my environment. Who's going to take care of me? And what did I grow up to be? I grew up to be a very kind of over-trusting kind of person where... I'm pretty much an open book with most people, and I trust people until they show me they're not trustworthy. Um, And that's how I am. But that's the environment that I grew up in, and like one of the things I've had to learn, even as an adult, was to discern, is this person trustworthy? Do they want the good for me before I sort of like let them into my world? Um, You know, or, do I know that God wants the good for me so much that even if I let people into my world and I'm rejected, it's going to be okay because I know my identity in Christ. So, yeah, so there are lots of things that can be disorders, but I do think that that doctrinal diagram is important for explaining doctrine, but it's not proclaiming the gospel. I'm going to, I have a box, this empty tissue box, and it has a bunch of question marks on it. So I'm going to leave this in the back of the room during the next break, and maybe you can jot down, if you guys have questions, you can jot them down, and I'll get to them when we wrap up. Okay. Um, Okay. So based on his body, Adam could have determined that he was similar to other living beings. Rather, he reached the conviction that he was alone. Man alone can rule the earth, can cultivate and transform it according to his own needs. The structure of the body is such that it permits him to be the author of genuinely human activity. 
in this activity, the body expresses the person. Right? So this is John Paul II's big mantra, is the body is the sacrament of the person. Right? The body expresses the person. It is thus, in all its materiality, he formed man from the dust of the ground, penetrable and transparent, as it were in such a way as to make it clear who man is and who he ought to be, thanks to the structure of his consciousness and self-determination. Okay, a lot of big words in that quote. But, like, the body expresses who we are. And so it's because we have a body that we can enter into relationships with other people. Right, we enter into relationships through our body. And when we say that the body reveals the person, it's more than just about, like, body language, although body language is one of the ways that we can see that. Right? Like our body language might tell somebody, I'm not open to you, I'm open to you. I'm happy, I'm sad. Okay, it leaves a lot to be interpreted. And we're not always good interpreters of other people's body language. Like sometimes I have a face that tells my secretary, stay the heck out of my way today. But what my face is actually saying is, man, I'm just feeling the weight of a lot of people's junk right now. You know, so it can be misinterpreted. Right? I'm sure that that never happens among you married couples. <laughs> that your body language can be misinterpreted. Or within a religious community. <laughs> right? Because we're not always very good at being transparent. Right? But in its original state, the body revealed the person. And so there was this kind of transparency that came through the body. So he says it's penetrable and transparent which means our bodies also make us vulnerable. Okay, our bodies make us vulnerable. And when I say vulnerable, I don't only mean that we can be hurt by something, but that we can be touched by something. We can be moved by something. If you see the Grand Canyon and you walk away saying, man, that was just a big hole in the ground. <laughs> right, there's probably something broken in your affect. Right? When I went to the Grand Canyon, I hate nature. Like, I hate nature and I hate art ever since I was a kid. I just don't like these things. And I never appreciated beauty, probably because I watched too much TV as a kid. But when I went to the Grand Canyon, I was expecting to just, like, go see this site. And actually, when I saw it, I was filled with awe and wonder. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Because it touched something in me. It made an impression on my affect. Right, that's what it means that are, we are penetrable. Right, when a man falls in love with a woman, he's penetrable. Her beauty captivates him. She makes an impression on his heart. And he goes home and he's like, man, I saw this girl on the bus and I can't get her out of my head. I just keep thinking about her all the time. Because she made an impression on him, which creates a desire, which makes him want to move towards her and get to know her. You know, the same thing with our Lord. Our Lord needs to make an impression on our hearts that creates a desire for us to move towards Him. That's what happened with the woman caught in adultery. She made an impression on her heart. Our Lord made an impression on her. And which created this desire, and the desire moves towards the Beloved. And when we come to possess the Beloved, then we have joy. 
So it's an important aspect of being a body is that we are impressionable. Things make an impression on us. And we come to know ourselves in those relationships. So placed before the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil, there's a question of the alternative between death and immortality. The words, you shall die, don't eat that fruit or even touch it or else you'll die, signify that there is dependence in existing so that they show man as a limited being and by his nature susceptible to non-existence. Right? Like we are vulnerable. <clears throat> there is the possibility that we die. And that vulnerability points back to the fact that we're created for relationship with a God who is love. It points to our identity as sons and daughters. Okay, if we don't have vulnerability in our life, we cannot be sons and daughters. This was the reading last Sunday when St. Paul talks about how an angel was sent to beat him or a demon was sent to beat him or whatever. I prayed three times that God would take this away. Okay, I have this thorn in my flesh. I prayed three times God would take it away, but he didn't take it away. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Which is interesting because take it away would signify like, I want you to take away this temptation so I'm not reminded of the fact that I'm vulnerable and I need you. You know, it's in the midst of that temptation that St. Paul has to constantly open himself to God's grace. So my grace is sufficient for you means that we are completely dependent on that relationship with the Father all of the time. And if our temptation was taken away, we wouldn't learn that lesson about our identity as his sons and daughters. And so when we talk about sins of impurity or being tempted to impurity, this caused great angst for Teresa Tamio when I was on the radio the other day. We talk about being tempted to impurity, like sometimes we use verbiage like flee from temptation. Like run away from that. Get rid of that thought. Put it out of your head. Well, the thing is, when people would write about flee from temptation, like when St. Philip Neri writes, when you're tempted, flee, he's actually talking about running into a prostitute on the street. When I was in Rome one morning, I got up and I walked home from my sister's house and I got propositioned by a prostitute. And what did I have to do? I had to run away. That's what you do. But he was, it's not necessarily applicable to the temptations that show up in our brains, especially when kids have been exposed to really inappropriate content. And so, like, it's an opportunity to say, my grace is sufficient for you. And so what I found the counsel I found has worked for many, many people or to at least change their whole perspective was, Jesus, you're welcome into my imagination right now. I'm going to be more dependent on our Lord right now. I'm going to ask Jesus to fill my imagination right now. So I don't like run away from that, but rather I invite our Lord in to bear that temptation with me. So he doesn't actually take it away. Because, like, Jesus, take this away, get this out of my head. That's St. Paul saying, take this away from me. Saying, Jesus, you're welcome into my imagination. You're welcome into my room. You're welcome to go on the computer with me. You're welcome to go to sleep with me. Whatever it is, is saying, responding to my grace is sufficient for you.
because it's about a relationship. Okay, when we talk about sin, we'll talk about how like all sins against unchastity are the result of the loss of our identity as sons and daughters. And so what heals is the restoration of our identity as sons and daughters. So all sins of impurity or unchastity are the result of the loss of our identity as sons and daughters. So the thing that heals is the restoration of our identity as sons and daughters. Okay, and I will flesh that out when we get to the section on sin. Because so often we say that this is a distortion about the way men see women or women see men. It is, but it's rooted in the distortion of the way I see myself in relationship with God. We, we know that in a practical way because any of you who are teachers of elementary school kids who notice the kids who are all worried about who's dating who in first grade, you know that there's something that's missing in their parent-child relationship at home. A lot of times in a very concrete and practical way, you know that about them. And it's just kind of inherent when there's something missing in my identity as a son or a daughter, I look to fill that need to be loved in a relationship with another person. I'm not saying that in an absolute way because it's possible that it comes about another way, but it's my own experience that was true because I was the kid who always had to have a girlfriend from seventh grade till I went to the seminary, basically. And I felt like I had value if a girl liked me and I had no value if girls didn't like me. And I know why. I know what my wounds were and everything. Now I know why. Back then I just was like, I need girls to like me because I'm not good at sports. <laughs> so this is the way it went. All right. Um, we'll take another break. We'll have to decide if this is too many breaks. Um, so we'll take a break. I'm going to put this question box in the back um, so you can jot down your questions. And, um, and I think this is good. But... Uh, yeah, we'll have to see how far we get. Okay, thanks. Ten minutes. Are those dry erase? Yeah, they say dry erase. Where should I put this? Okay, I'm going to put the question box by the donuts. That's fine. Yeah, thanks. It's up by the donuts. By the donuts. Okay. Oh, I wouldn't go over there. 